0: worship team and good morning everybody. Starting today we're going to spend five weeks studying different parables spoken by Jesus and to launch us into that series. We have a guest speaker today, Dr. Phil Thorne. Phil, do you mind joining me on stage as I introduce you? Uh, So Phil attended Denver Theological Seminary where he got his master's and later went on to Cambridge University, same place that our pastor went, uh, George Davis. Uh, That's where he got his doctorate. When he came back to the States, he pastored at West Shore Free Church for several years just across the river over in the Mechanicsburg area. After retiring from there, he's uh, still teaching and uh, is on the faculty for Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. One of his most challenging tasks there at Gordon-Conwell has been supervising me as one of his students. Uh, He had jet jet black hair. He made it. (laughs) He had dark hair when I first met him, so I don't know if I had anything to do with uh, with that, but we appreciate you being here, uh, one of his greatest joys he tells me is his family been married to his wife cindy for was it forty five years forty five years, 45 years. Uh, He has two grown daughters and four grandchildren uh, but we 're excited that he can be with us. Do you mind if I pray for you, Phil, before we get started? Uh, Father, We believe that your word is powerful that it 's authoritative, that it uh, reveals to us and shows us how we can be in right relationship with you, Father and how we can navigate uh, the different things in this life and live a life worthy of your name. I want to pray for Phil that you would give him uh, just a passion as he reads this text for us. Would you give him confidence as he unpacks the meaning that it has for our life and the meaning that Jesus uh, wanted us to hear when we heard this parable taught. I want to pray for all of our listeners. I want to pray for myself uh, that we would soak this in. I pray that this parable would bring comfort to those who need that, I pray that it would challenge all of us. I pray that it would satisfy those who are here today listening online that are just hungry to hear your word and to hear it taught uh, to them in a practical way. We pray this to you, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, Phil. Thanks.
1: The last time I was at Hershey. Um, I, I think there was a pulpit, not, not, a, not a little circle like this. So <clears throat> that tells you how long it's been since I've been at Hershey. Um, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 15? Luke chapter 15. I, I'm going to be focusing uh, on what is commonly called the parable of the prodigal son, which begins in verse 11. But in order for you to get a feel for what was going on when Jesus spoke this amazing story. I want to begin with the first verse in chapter 15 and just read the whole context leading up to the parable. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious folks, muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me i found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So, have you ever lost something? I mean, something precious to you. Maybe it was a treasured piece of jewelry given to you by someone you love. Or or a family heirloom passed down from generation to generation. Or maybe it was your pet. But whatever it was, it was important to you. And losing it made your heart sick. And obviously you went looking for it. I mean, you, you turned the house upside down. You, you carefully retraced every step. And, and everywhere you went, you, you, could, you would ask whoever you could whether they'd found your treasure. And when you found it, if you found it, what joy you felt. I mean, if you were like me, you, you would have jumped for joy. You might even have shouted out loud and at least you would have run to find somebody you could tell that you had found it. Because when you lose something that's precious and then you find it, you experience a joy that just has to be shared. But let me ask you another question. Have you ever lost something of supreme value? I mean, I'm not talking about a ring or even a pet, but a person. Well, I want to tell you about a time, it's been more than 30 years ago now, when Cindy and I lost a child in the streets of London. It was Christmas time. And, and we were living in Cambridge, England, while I was pursuing my doctorate. And our children were quite young. Rachel, our eldest, was six years old, and, and little Sarah was three. You should have seen her back then. I mean, she had red, curly hair that kind of went down her back. She was, she was adorable. I mean, she still is, but she really was. And, and we had taken the train. <clears throat> By the way, she's here today, so I threw that in for her. We, we had taken the train from London with our friends, <clears throat> Mark and Janet, to, to see the sights and, and the sounds of the city and, and to enjoy the, the Christmas lights and, and to shop in some of the famous stores like, like Herod's and Hamley's. In fact, we had just come out of Hamley's Toy Store in this huge three-story building that had more toys than I have ever seen in my life. And coming out the door and stepping to the side, we, we began to discuss with our friends where we would go next. And we had, we had left our two girls standing in front of the, the store windows because Hamley's is, is famous for their, their display windows at Christmas time. I mean, we, we turned our attention away for just a moment. But when Cindy glanced back, she cried out, Where's Sarah? And my heart sank. And then, then I began to panic because you, th- this, was, this was Christmas time in the streets of London. I mean, everywhere you looked, there were people. The, the cars were, were packed in the streets and, and shoppers were walking shoulder to shoulder. So I, I began to run up the street this direction while my friend, Mark, ran the other way. And, and as we ran, we shouted, Sarah, Sarah. But she was nowhere to be found. And, and, and I finally gave up and turned around. And, and by the time I came back, Mark was already there, empty-handed. And Cindy was crying. And I was in despair. And then suddenly, we saw him. The, the doorman at Hamley's toy store, dressed in a red coat from his shoulders down to his ankles, and he was coming through the crowd that was opening up, and he was holding our little girl in his arms. Now, how can I describe to you my feelings at that moment? But I I don't have to, do I? I mean, you know, especially if you are a parent You know how the heart of a father, how the heart of a mother beats for their children. You know, and God knows too. Because he who created us as mothers and fathers felt that bond of love before we ever experienced it. And the purpose of this parable of the prodigal son he is, is to tell the story of how the, of the heart of our father in heaven beats for his lost children. Now, you may not know this or realize it, but this parable has been misnamed. It's not really the parable of the prodigal son. It's actually a tale of two sons, two brothers One, a young profligate who leaves his father in search of his fortune. And the other, an obedient elder brother who stays close at home. And the primary purpose of this often told tale is not simply to tell the story of the prodigal son and his return. No, the primary purpose is to reveal the heart of his father. A father who has lost and then found a beloved child. And the secondary purpose of this parable, which may surprise you, is to expose an unexpected similarity between these two brothers. Now, as you know, the story begins with a simple, classic tale of a young man who feels constrained by by the rules and the regulations, the the limitations of his father's house. I mean, he he just wants to be free. Free to dream his own dreams, to to do his own thing, to, to finally experience all that life has to offer. And the father is holding him back. Or so it seems to him. I mean, little does he know that the father is holding him back like a bank holds a river to channel it, to to keep it from running off in some dissipating and destructive course. But this son has to learn the hard way. And so he leaves. He leaves the father's house and he heads for a country far away, far away from the father's eyes, far away from the father's ears, far away from the reach of his voice. But did you notice that his break with the father is not a complete one? No, he he took the father's money with him. In fact, he dared to ask for his share of the inheritance while his father was still living. I mean, think about that. That's an insult in any culture. But in an ancient Middle Eastern culture, it was completely unthinkable. And yet this father gave it to him. He wasn't the kind of father that was going to keep his son close to home by pulling on the purse strings. So it was the father's resources that financed this son's pursuit of all the passing pleasures of this life until the famines came and the well ran dry. And make no mistake, the famines always come eventually in the far country where the father's gifts are used according to the children's pleasure rather than the father's design. And when the father's borrowed capital was all used up, surprise, surprise, all his fair weather friends were now nowhere to be found. And this young man was driven to the point of degrading desperation. He was forced to feed pigs in a foreign land. I mean, that is the height of offense to a Jew. I mean, remember, this story is being told by a Jew to a Jewish audience about a Jewish family. And Jesus meant this point to be shocking. Shocking that that this young Jewish man was so hungry that he would have jumped into the pig's pen and wrestled with the pigs to get something to eat. But they wouldn't even let him do that. In other words, the prodigal son hit bottom and i 'm sad to say that is what it sometimes takes i 've been waiting over forty thirty years, not forty yet, but between thirty and forty years for a prodigal that I know to hit bottom. He was once my dearest friend I can still remember officiating at his wedding. I can still remember us planning how we were going to move to the same town and spend our lives raising our families together. But he left his God, and he has yet to come to his senses. Fortunately, in Jesus' story, the the prodigal does come to his senses. He realizes uh, under the pain of, ban- of poverty the bankruptcy of his life in the far country. He-, he finally understands that the path that led out of the father's house in the name of freedom what was actually a path of bondage to his own selfish desires. And it was a, it was a path of deception that would ultimately lead to his destruction. So this prodigal comes to his senses, he repents, and he returns. And then the spotlight in the story shifts from the prodigal son to the waiting father. Because the text says in verse 20, while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him. Which means, I think, that the father must have been looking for him. And probably not just on the day when, when he happened to come home. Otherwise, how would he have seen him? No, he was looking for him other days as well. Maybe even every day. See, as a father, the way I picture this, is the dad probably got up every morning with his son on his mind. And just about every afternoon, when he stopped working for lunch, I see him looking to the horizon wondering, will my boy ever come home? And then at the end of the day, as the sun began to set, I picture him taking a walk and worrying, what's happening to my son tonight in the dark? Oh, how the heart of a father beats for his lost child. And did you notice what the father did when he finally saw the silhouette of his son moving across the horizon? He didn't do what you and I would have been tempted to do. He didn't make that boy walk the long, hard road all the way home by himself. He didn't make him give a humiliating account of all the places he had been and all that he had done with his father's money. No, what this dad did is he pulled up his robe and he took off running across the field. And when he reached his son, he threw his arms around his dirty, sin-stained body and he kissed him. And when this young man finally got the words out that, that he wasn't worthy to be called his son, that the father almost like shoved those words away and he shouted to his servants, quick, bring the best robe. Put put a put a family ring on his finger. I want you to go get that that calf we've been fattening up for a feast. I want you to go into the village and invite everybody, because we're gonna have a party. My son, who was as good as dead, is alive. He was lost. Now he's found. A question. Why do you think Jesus is telling us this story? And why is Jesus telling us this story in this particular way? I mean, could it be, could it possibly be, that the one being who has lived eternally in the presence of the Father wants to give us a special glimpse? into how the Father feels? I mean, the pain God feels when he's separated from his children by our sin. How much he suffers when we prefer the passing pleasures of this life to living in his presence. And, and, and is it possible that he's trying, Jesus is trying to communicate to us How much God desires to have us come home? And how glad he will be to receive us if we only do that? So glad that he throws a party in heaven when each and every prodigal repents and returns? Is this the picture of God that you carry in your soul? Is this the picture of God that you share with other people? I mean, do you see God's, the Father's eyes filled with tears of compassion? Do do you hear his heart beating with painful longing as he waits for his wayward children to come home? I mean, do you, do you see him running toward us, overcoming every obstacle, every barrier that we've placed between him and us? Do, do you see God falling on our stubborn, sin-stained necks and kissing them repeatedly with forgiving love? Now, I, I ask that question, not only because it is supremely important, Not only because it determines our entire approach to God and our approach to the people in this world who are sinners like us. I ask it because this is the question the story demands, the question raised by the response of the elder brother. In verse 28, The text says, upon hearing of the father's party, the older brother became angry and refused to go inside. He refused to celebrate his brother's return. And once again, the father is estranged from an erring child. And for the second time in a single day, it is the father who takes the initiative to overcome the separation that has been created by a son. He goes outside of the tent and he goes to the older brother and he asks him to come and share in his joy. And I'd like to add this must have been a humiliating scene as the father goes out to his son and pleads with him to come into the party in the presence of of all the invited guests of the village. But the elder brother, his heart doesn't beat for the prodigal son the way his father's does. In fact, the heart of the elder brother doesn't seem to beat with the, heart, the father's heart much at all. L- listen to what he says in verse 29. Look. <laughs> That's a rather insulting way to address your father, don't you think? Look. All these years I've been slaving for you. <laughs> An odd way to refer to, to life on the family farm. And I've never disobeyed your orders. And, and what good has it done to, for me, he says, in essence? Not even once have you given me a goat for a party with my friends, let alone kill a fattened calf. And you know, from, from a certain point of view, the, the elder brother's response is understandable. I mean, how would you have responded? How, how would I have responded, honestly, honestly? I mean, our brother comes home. He's just wasted half of the inheritance on wild living while we've been working hard and long at home. And what does dad do? Dad spends some more money and throws another party. But from the father's point of view, the elder brother's response is tragic because it reveals just how much he misunderstands the heart of the father and how little he understands about the true nature of being a son. You see, for the father, sonship is fellowship. It's walks in the field. It's meals around the table. It's living and laboring together, enjoying each other's company. It's the harmony of two hearts, beating as one, father and son, son and father. And yes, it has its material benefits. I mean, all that I have is yours, the Father says. But more importantly, verse 31, you have always been with me. See, being with me, I with you, you with me, that's what family life is all about. But for this elder brother, being a son has devolved into, into a kind of dutiful obedience. It's, it's doing what the father wants so that I can get what I really want, which is a party with my friends and eventually my inheritance. You see, it's it's performing a set of obligations to get a reward which I think means it's playing the part of the son while remaining a prodigal at heart. I mean, how ironic. But By the end of this story, the prodigal son and the proper elder brother have begun to look and sound very much alike. I mean, on the outside, they are completely different pursuing radically different ways of life. One, the way of freedom and folly. The the other, the way of duty and restraint. One, the way of shame and disgrace. The, The other way of social respectability and honor. But they've ended up in the same place. You see, for both of them, life with the Father is feeling something like slavery. I mean, one went into the far country to escape that slavery, while the other stayed close at home and suffered under it. But both of them, both of them, are equally far from the Father's heart. Because both of them are focused on the Father's gifts and not the Father himself. They see him as a means to an end. And that end is the satisfaction of their own desires. And they're rather worldly and selfish desires at that. But there is is a difference between the two. You see, one of the sons came to his senses. The story of the prodigal son has a happy ending. This wayward boy returns and he returns with a whole new understanding of the goodness and the grace of his father and the value of living in the family home under the gaze of his father's eyes within the reach of his voice near his his strong hand and arm. But the story of the elder brother, did you notice this? It doesn't really end. I mean, Jesus' parable concludes with an appeal. I mean, won't you come inside, son? Won't you rejoice with me in the return of your brother? Won't you come to your senses and repent of your self-righteousness? Please, won't you? I can almost hear those questions echoing down through the years. It's far too easy, isn't it, to lose sight of the incredible privilege of being a daughter or a son of God. It's far too easy to to take the Father's heart and the Father's house for granted. It's far too easy even for good Christians like us, to to begin to think of God as a means to an end, and sometimes a very self-centered end at that. I mean, why are you here today in the Father's house? Why are you a Christian anyway? I mean, is it, is it to get the stuff? The stuff. You know, all the stuff God is supposed to give to those who believe the way they ought to believe and those who do what they're supposed to do. You know, you know, the stuff of a, of a good and healthy and successful life. The the stuff of a happy and, and, and put together family. The the stuff of earthly blessing and, oh yes, all all that eternal life stuff thrown in too. Or are you here? Am I here to be with the Father? To enjoy his presence? To share his heart? To to live in harmony with him? by, By becoming like his son? And by the way, did you notice that there was a third son in this story? The the son who did not misunderstand his father's heart, but but actually embodied it? He's the son who's telling the story. The, The son who also went into the far country, but not to waste the father's gifts, but to redeem them. To find all God's lost daughters and sons and to bring us home. And this son, too, suffered in the far country. Suffered much more than mere hunger or thirst. He suffered death on a cross. Death in our place. Death to bring us life. A life of intimacy with our Father in heaven, the eternal Son of God left his Father in glory and clothed himself in our human flesh and blood. Why? So that he could defeat the power of sin and death and bring us home. And John 3.16, the the verse we learn as children, tells us that God the Father loved the world so much that he gave his Son up to this death so that whoever believes in him might have everlasting life that's an everlasting life of intimacy with our father in heaven that begins right now on earth so my question is actually it's the question of jesus from this story where are you today who are you like have you wandered into some far country in pursuit of whatever? Do you need to come to your senses and come home? Or are you perhaps a bit more like the elder brother? I mean, you've, you've stayed very close to home. You've been careful to obey all the rules. But if you're honest you're far from the Father's heart. You you don't hear His voice. You you don't really sense His presence. You you don't understand what it means to be with Him. Or, Or perhaps you've just forgotten. Will you come home? Oh, how the heart of the Father beats for his lost children. Both the one that goes far away and the one that stays very close to home. I want to end by reading the introduction to one of my favorite books on prayer by one of my favorite authors on the spiritual life, Richard Foster. Because I think he's captured for us the heart of God. God has graciously allowed me, he writes, to catch a glimpse into his heart. And I want to share with you what I have seen. Today, the heart of God is an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to him. He grieves that we have forgotten him. He weeps over our obsession with muchness and manyness. He longs for our presence. And he's inviting you and me to come home. To come home to where we belong. To come home to that for which we were created. His arms are stretched out wide to receive us. His heart is enlarged to take us in for too long. We have been in a far country. A country of noise and hurry and crowds. A country of climb and push and shove. A country of frustration and fear and intimidation. And he welcomes us home. Home to serenity and peace and joy. Home to friendship and fellowship and openness. Home to intimacy and acceptance, and affirmation. We do not need to be shy. He invites us into the living room of his heart, where we can put on old slippers and share freely. He invites us into the kitchen of his friendship, where chatter and batter mix in good fun. He invites us into the dining room of his strength, where we can feast to our heart's delight he invites us into the study of his wisdom where we can learn and grow and stretch and ask all the questions we want. He invites us into the workshop of his creativity where we can be co-laborers with him, working together to determine the outcome of events. He invites us into the bedroom of his rest where new peace is found, and where we can be naked and vulnerable and free. It is also the place of deepest intimacy where we know and are known to the fullest. And the key to this home, to this heart of God, is prayer. Genuine communion with him. Oh, how the heart of the Father and the son, beat for their lost children. Both those who have gone into the far country and those who are found very close to home. Will you come home? Let's pray. Father, open the eyes of our hearts to see your beating heart of love that has been revealed by your Son in this story and then even more clearly revealed by his life and his death for us. Break through whatever barriers we have put up between You and us, so that we might experience the forgiving love and the meaningful embrace of your presence in this life and in the life evermore. We want that for ourselves, for our families, for our children and our grandchildren. And we want it, we want to communicate this. To your world because we experience it. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> uh, in a moment, I'm going to pronounce a benediction over you. I know you don't, well, I, I, I've heard that you don't do that every Sunday, but I, I can't end a service without doing it, so forgive this old man. But um, I want to invite um, the prayer team to come forward at this time. Because Hershey wants to create an opportunity for you to respond to what the Lord has said to you today. And so if you would like someone to pray for you or with you about anything, please um, come after the benediction and let these people pray. Now, everyone rise.